Hello everyone, and welcome to the MTG Novels Project 0.4. I've intentionally named it 0.4, not because it's a prequel, but because it will not be half as good as my inspiration. The original MTG Novels Project began by Coach at the Car Bazaar. Coach has done an excellent job in providing the community with high-quality audio performances of three of Magic's first novels. He's also done a ton of other Magic lore content, um, which I encourage you to check out. My intention in using the same name as him is to honor his work and hopefully continue his legacy and achieve what he set out to do. I will link his videos below and I hope you will watch them before any of my content. Another note is I would also advise you to watch Coach's first three books at the Carbazar channel as they cover the history of what happened in Magic's early times. I will be trying to cover the books in the most logical order possible, but will not be redoing the fabulous work already done by Coach. Another disclosure I want to make is I have had a speech impediment earlier in my life, which I have tried my best to overcome. I also apologize if I find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I am trying my best to provide you with the best content I am able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear your constructive feedback, which cracks pronunciation issues provides other realistic feedback that will improve the project. I have not ever received any vocal coaching, um, so uh, I apologize for any pronunciation issues or anything that does not sound quite right. So um, here's where you can find the Car Bazaar channel if you so wish. Um, so. A legal note is this is an unofficial audiobook with original contact belonging to Wizards of the Coast. This contact is covered under the 2017 Wizards of the Coast fan content policy. Listener discretion is advised. And without further ado, I bring you The Colors of Magic Anthology, edited by Jess LeBeau. White. White is a color of temptation, innocence, purity, and civility. People characterized by this color love life and longevity, but do so without excess or grandeur. Some see white as childish, a return to youth, while others know it to be filled with focus and a desire to live an uncolored life. White is for the honest, the righteous, and the eager, the desic, the self-minded, who will stand up to perfect justice and honor. It is the color of the plains and temples, the color of the scholar and a virtuous knight alike. White is for those who believe in a cause and believe in themselves, for those unafraid to stand up in the face of adversity. Our first short story is Angel of Vengeance by Richard Lee Byers. Shining like a star, Kotera was soaring among the constellations when she felt the summons. The call came as suddenly and forcefully as a hook lodged in the mouth of a fish. Yet it didn't hurt, because she didn't resist. Long ago, in the morning of the world, a benevolent order of wizards had aided she and her sisters in the first great war against the legions of the pit. In gratitude, the angels had sworn to serve the mages and their heirs whenever they called, and a daughter of the divine wind didn't chafe at her obligations. 
She furled her wings and hurtled towards the planet far below. The summons led her over an island-dotted expanse of ocean and onto the kingdom of Zalfur. Flying above the rolling dunes of the Desert of Bones, where a caravan with its grunting tethered camels and scaly, hunchbacked Vashino guides huddled around its nighttime campfire. She surmised that the call was drawing her to the capital. That was no surprise. In her experience, wizards might, mighty enough to command an angel often dwelled into the seats of mortal power. The royal city, with its miles of stupendous walls and deep water harbored, its minarets, bazaars, labyrinthine streets, and communal wells, was larger when she'd seen it 70 years ago. Yet the palace itself was no different. At one time, the great marvel piled had exited in an almost perpetual state of construction. As one proud monarch after another enlarged and improved it, but evidently those days were over. Now Kotara could actually hear the baritone voice of the sorcerer who called her. Though measured and precise as a mage's diction must be, is nevertheless throbbed with grief and her heart ached in sympathy. She followed the sound to the apex of the tallest tower of one of the mansions in the noble quarter. Her summons had let the shuttered window open for her entry. Inside was a candlelit chamber, equipped with shelves bearing jars, bottles, scrolls, grimoires, racks of ceremonial staves, wands, swords, daggers, a silver chalice, a mortar and pestle, a scrying mirror, an orrery, and other appurtenances of the occult arts. The bitter scent of mirth hung in the air. The mage himself was young and slight of frame, with the beginnings of a scholar's stoop. He wore the elaborate pearl and ivory-colored vestments of the civic guild, the fraternity of wizards who served Zafar as jurists and lawmakers. A marble diamond amulet, a source of great power for sorcerers of his guild, hung round his neck. Grey ash streaked his haggard features. Evidently, he'd attended a funeral that morning and had neglected to wash afterwards. He gasped when the angel appeared to him, momentarily overwhelmed, perhaps as most humans were on first meeting, by the unearthly splendor of her iridescent feathers, the fluid grace of her slender alabaster form, or the radiance of her crystal eyes. I am Kotara, she said gently. Come in obedience to your summons. I feared it wouldn't work, the mage replied. It's been a long time since I attempted such a spell. In recent years, I've devoted myself to law and politics, he grimaced. Forgive me, I'm babbling. There's nothing to forgive, Kotara said. May I know your name? Sabul, Sabul Harjin. How may I serve you, Sabul Harjin? By bringing justice, the guildmage said. A certain hardness returned to expression. Five days ago, one of the Ilmaras murdered my younger brother, Axton, in an alley. Upon hearing the name, 
Kotara immediately knew, as was the way of the angels, that the house of Ilmira was another of the aristocratic families residing in the capital. Do you need my help to apprehend the culprit, she asked. Has he fled the city or gone into hiding? Sabul laughed bitterly. By no means. Emira's swagger about the streets as they always have. And why not? My idiot colleagues of the Civic Guild have already held an inquest and sighed there's no evidence to lead the wretches to the crime. Kotara frowned. If that's so, then how do you know they're guilty? Because they've been a bitter rival of the Harjin for years, the wizard said. They hated us like Mishra hated Urza, and have always strived to injure us by every underhanded means at their disposal. Multam Amira, the vilest of the lot, actually had the insolence to attend Axdan's Oquesquities, I apologize, when he approached me obstinately to offer his condolences, I saw the mocker in his eyes and knew that he was the hand that thrust the dagger into Axtan's throat. My uncle, Tartesque, the head of our family, knows it too. Sabu continued, but he will do nothing about it. He says ours is an honorable house. We do not stoop to blood flute, flute feuds or flout the law to strike at our foes. Well, perhaps he doesn't, but I will. I'll challenge Moltam to meet me blade to blade, except I'm no swordsman. Even if my uncle and the city guard permitted the duel, I could not defend Axtan, but I can send you to do it for me. Sympathetic to his anguish and obliged to obey him in any case, Katara nonetheless hesitated. At length she said, Sabul, Master, no wizard has ever summoned me for such a mission as this. His eyes red and puffy from lack of sleep narrowed. What does that matter? He hesitated once more. I suppose it doesn't. Then stand over here, he gestured towards the spot on the floor. I intend to equip you for your task, to make absolutely certain you succeed. An hour later, Kotara soared above the city once more. A helm, breastplate, van braces and greaves. Light as mist, strong as steel, lustrous as the mother of pearl, sheathed her willowy form, while an augmented strength sang within her limbs. Both the armor and her newfound might were enchantments, manifest of the magic of law and sanctity, no less than she herself. Yet for some reason they felt strange, and almost indeed noisome to her. Had it been Sabul's will that she bear them, she would have dissolved them anyway. She studied the twisting streets below her, like an owl searching for its dinner. Though it was late enough that most mortals had long ago sought their beds, a series of a city as huge as this still offered carnal diversions for the privileged and licious few. Such a man was Multam Ilmira, whose appetite for wine, dice, and harlots had made him almost as notorious as his prowess with a sword. For all that she rarely needed them, the divine will in its scrupulous wisdom 
have given Katara the instincts of a huntress, and they led her to Multam quickly enough. He and four companions were strolling away from a tavern, bowling a ribald song and waving earthing jugs in time to the beat. Even from the air, Kotara could smell the miasma of the raw spirit that hung on their breaths and oozed from their pores. Should anyone learn that an angel had slain Multam, the hygiene, three of whom belonged to the civic guild, might well come under suspicion. Thus, Sabul had bade her to do the deed unseen. She could kill her victim from above, by surprise, then instantly vanish into the darkness. But it wasn't in her nature to strike such a cowardly blow. She swooped, caught Multan by the arm, and with a resounding crack of her wings, carried him aloft. He yelped, and his friends spun around, but they did not think to look up, not quickly enough, anyway. In a second, the angel left them far behind. She soared until she sighted a deserted courtyard, two streets over, then deposited her captive on a dry, hard pack of earth. Multam was the lead man, with a saturnine cast of countenance, clad in the gorgeous patterned scarlet kaftan. Perhaps paralyzed by fear, perhaps calm, and canny enough to realize that if he broke his abductor's grip, he'd only fall to his death. He had struggled during the fight, but as soon as his feet touched the ground, his hand leaped to the roomy pommel to help hilt of his scimitar. The weapon was halfway out of the scabbard when Carold lit him for him, and he had his first real look at her. His dark eyes widened. He froze, but only for an instant. Then he finished drawing and came on guard. From the facility of his movements, it was clear that the alcohol stink notwithstanding, he wasn't drunk. Katara was grateful for that at least. Soul, Mutam said dryly, the milksop Harjin have a bit more sand than I imagined. At least not to conjure up an assassin, if not to fight their own battles. Which one of them sent you, spirit? His voice assumed a mock Lugubrious tone. Was it poor, bereft older brother? Justice send me, Katar replied, repulsed by the pleasure he took in Sabdul's grief. That's all that matters. Liar, Motam said. Justice set me free in the open court only yesterday. But it's all right. I've never killed a creature like you before. I wonder if I cut you, will your master feel the pain? like he did in all those old tales. Quicker the panther, he sprang at her. Katara only managed to block the cut. The edge of his sitar rang on her vambrace, and then he surged past her. They pivoted to face one another, and he lashed with a second slash, which she had avoided by stepping back. Now she sensed the magic flaring down his nerves, the enchantments that granted him inhuman speed. She was thankful for that too, it meant he had some chance, however slim. She allowed him to advance into range and attempt another head cut. This time she avoided the boy with a side step, then smoked him with her wing. The impact flung him backwards onto the ground. He tried to scramble up, but she launched herself at him, half leaping, half flying, and kicked him in the chest. 
Rigid's ribs snapped, and he smalled on his back again. Surely he was all but helpless now. She paused, steeling herself to deliver the coupe de gras as his hand darted inside his sultan shirt. She felt magic, the power of necromancy this time, surge as she activated some hidden charm. Dizziness and weakness assailed her, and she crumpled to their knees. The world went dark as her vision failed her. Croaking words of warning and drawing on her own innate power, she struggled to break the curse. Finally, the strength stopped leaking from her twitching, tremulous limbs, and the darkness in her eyes thinned sufficiently to permit a murky view of nearby shapes. A shadow loomed over her, raising its curved sword for a killing stroke. Katara jerked up her hand and caught Moltamp's wrist, arresting the scimitar in its ascent. Squeezing, she crushed the bone, then wrenched the motor to the ground, where a strike to the throat put an end to him. She felt the scream of terror and denial locked inside his ruined flesh, and in the yawning vacancy when his life force withered away. As she knelt beside him, shuttling and waiting for the rest of her strength to return, she reminded herself that Moltam hadn't denied murdering Sabul's brother. He'd struck the first blow in his battle with her. He'd ultimately assailed her with that sorcery that drawing his power from the darkness and the grave was forbidden to all but the members of the Shadow Guild. This fact suggested he might well have been a secret worshipper of the friend, fiends of the Abyss. Yet, none of these reflections helped her very much. She was still profoundly sick at heart. In the end, only one thought offered condolence. At least her task was over. Staring, Sabul listened intently at Kotara's story. When she finished, he sat silently for several moments, during which he studied, she studied his thin, wary face, seeking in vain for some sign of joy or contrition. Alas, he said, It sounded as if you, as if you dispatched Moltam quickly. He didn't suffer very much. Suffered, the angel exclaimed. He died. I ripped his life away. Forgive me, Sabo said. I wasn't criticizing. You did exactly what I asked. Next time, I'll make the instructions more specific. Kotara stared at him in consternation. How can there be a next time? You've already punished Ashton murderers. You've meted out your justice. Not true, the magician said, rising restlessly from his stool, his story vestments swirling around him. We've only made a start. It was clear from examination of the ground that several of the mirrors waylaid Axtan in that alley. The others held my brother while Muldam tortured and slew him. Obviously, they must pay too. Do you know who they are? Sabuel shrugged. More or less. Muldam had a certain had certain boon companions who helped him when he got up to deviltry. From what you told me, I guess you saw four of them tonight. Four of them? By the divine! How my were there altogether? Magician, she stammered. My sisters and I owe your predecessors a debt. I am happy to serve you. But I beg you to recall that your fraternity is cons cons consecration to the divine will as much as any priesthood. Your art 
was not created for this purpose, and neither was I. He scowled. What are you prattling about? The magic of your guild is holy magic, she replied, meant to nurture, heal, protect. I, a child of that same power, defend. In times of war, when an aggressor is at the gates, wizards are made to stand against him. It is not in my nature to initiate violence. It is in your nature to obey me, he snapped. Is it not? She sighed. Yes. Then I'll head heal no further objections. His face softened. He reached out headedly and patted her on the shoulder. It will be all right. You'll see for yourself that all the Inomeras are wicked men. It truly is just that they be punished. And surely justice is holy work, no less than ministering to the sick or driving back an invading army. Perhaps, the angel said. He smiled. Then we are in agreement, and all is well. Now, no one will shall see you here, so perhaps you'd better leave. Return tomorrow night, an hour after dusk, and I'll tell you whom to punish next. Like his cousin Multam, your tag possessed the signature lanky frame and long narrow face of the Ilomiras. They gave him the look of a famished wolf, which Kotera supposed was appropriate. According to Sabul, your tag, a poor relation, had followed his kingsmen around like a faithful hound, eager to assist in any escapade or crime, in exchange for a purse of silver that Multam occasionally tossed him. At present, your tag and a friend sat drinking a rack in the former's ramshackle called cottage on Leather Street. Judging from your take silence and sullen impression, he and the other topper were holding a wake of, of sons, though whether they were lamenting the loss of Mertam or his money was an open question. Cortella sulked behind the house in a cramped, malodorous alley, peeking through a barred window. She needed Yurtag's companion to leave him alone, yet dreaded the moment when he would. Eventually the fellow rose and exited the room to answer a call of nature. At once the angel gripped the wrought iron grill and tore it away from the window, so she'd be able to carry out her captive. Yurtag's head snapped around at the squeal of the tortured metal, but by that time Katara was already swarming into the room. As he drew the breath to cry out, she clamped, clamped her hand over his mouth, snatched him off his grimy pillows, and bore him out into the open air. Cartera flew him to the apex of the doom, domed and tiled roof of a nearby temple. When she let him go, he had teetered precariously on the smooth, curved surface. Spreading her wing, she balanced without effort. What? he whimpered. What are you? What do they, what do they say slew Multam? She replied, some creature, you take said, crouched to the lower of the center of gravity, some rock or a freight that swooped down from the sky. I am that creature, she said, sent to avenge Axdam Hajim's murder. Please, beg your take, don't kill me. It was all Murtab's idea. When we grabbed the boy, I didn't know he meant to knife him. I thought he was just going to knock him around a little. It doesn't matter, said Kaltera wishing that she didn't pity the wretch in his dread and desperation. 
you still must answer. He held a dagger tucked in his sash. A paltry thing, but she wanted it in his hand. Draw your weapon. He shook his head. Please, draw it, she rapped. Let's not protract this any longer than necessary. His face gray and his hand shaking. He fumbled the dammer, dagger and put it in her direction. With a beat of her wings, she darted towards him. The blade flashed at her. She busted aside with her armored forearm and struck your tank a backhand blow across the face. The impact sent him tumbling helplessly down the side of the roof. The dagger slipped from his grasp and bounded clankily along beside him. He screamed as she shot off the edge of the dome, where the curve met the sheer wall beneath. Kotara swooped and caught him, bore him up, twisting his head. Your tank goggled at her in bewilderment. I'm sorry, she said, her obsolescent wings beating in the chill night, but I simply couldn't let you fall. My master ordered me to give you a slower death. Your tank shrieked and thrashed, but his strength was nothing compared to hers. She lit atop the dome, holding him down, did with him as Sabul had commanded. When it was over, that portion of the roof was foul with splatters of blood. She crouched there weeping, quaking, remorse, remorse burning inside her like some excruciating poison. It took her half an hour to compose herself sufficiently for the flight back to the mansion of the Hegin. As she spread her wing, she noticed something curious. With her, with her luminous feathers, she was accustomed to a kindling to kindling a glow in any reflective surface she happened to encounter in the dark. Indeed, she saw smears of light swimming in the glazing tiles. They seemed strangely faint, as if the radiance of her plumage had dimmed. It was an odd phenomenon, but as far as she had concerned, of no particular significance. Yet little seemed significant to her now, save for the brutal act she had just committed. Sobbing anew, she soared away from her abattoir. Ash still streaking his face and stubble darkening his chin, Sabuul lifted gravely to Kotara's account of Yurtag's demise. Unseemly as it was for an angel to harbor such a hope, she wished the civic guildmaster would gloat over her description of her victim's agonies, because that might indicate he was satisfied, or at least becoming so. But he never so much as smiled, just nodded thoughtfully, like a clerk checking an inventory of goods and finding it in order. You did well, he said when she had finished. Oh yes, did well as his torturer. Had she not been bound to his service, she might almost have wished to strike him. Perhaps, but despite my effort to slink about unseen, the Imelmeras know that something is slaying them. Moreover, they expect it is something inhuman, something that plunges from the skies. Sabrul slugged, if you say so. Having deduced that much, surely they will in time surmise which magicians had to kill against them, whether they catch a glimpse of me or not. Samuel smirked. As a jurist, I can tell you that they know, and what they can prove to a magistrate's satisfaction are two different things. By the two moons, I think I'd enjoy being accused. Let them discover how it feels to watch your kinsman sl slayer saunter out of court a free man. They might find a way to convict you, 
Qatar insisted. And if they do, you'll go to the block. I risk it gladly. What of the rest of your family? The angel asked, shifting her wings in frustration. Her feathers rushed, rustled. If you're exposed, Tartesque and all your relations will share in your disgrace. The scandal could ruin the hygiene for all time. So pilgrimaged. Exactly. What are you getting at? The man who actually murdered Accent is dead. So is his foremost accomplice. That's two lies for one. Be content with so much and stop now. Before you and your kids, kindred come to grief. He shook his head. I can't. Anyway, you needn't pretend that you want to stop because you're concerned about my welfare. But I am. From the first moment I heard your voice, so full of suffering. Rubbish. You're just squeamish. It's more than squeamishness. I'm suffering too, sorcerer. Suffering a way that I don't care, he snarled. Although immediately afterwards, just for an instant, she fancied she saw a flicker of shame in his eyes. Go. I am returned tomorrow night. He turned his back on her. Her fingers half curled into a fist, then opened again. Exander Elmira had stationed a pair of sentries on the roof of his house and barred the shutters of his bedchamber. By flying low, Kotera evaded the scrutiny of the former and it made herself sufficiently intangible to slip between the latter. Once inside, she opened the panels to facilitate a heated departure with her prisoner. Starer than most of his kindred, but sharing this, the usual ill-marin long nose and wide, thin-lipped mouth, Iskander lay snoring be beside his pretty young wife. The sight of the girl snuggled close to him and smiling in her sleep made the angels flinch. Still, she had no choice but to proceed. She plucked Excander from his bride's embrace, pressing her hand to his mouth, and hurried to the window. The slumbering girl gave a pleasant little moan. The angel leaped out of the darkness, dove down almost to street level, until she was a safe distance from the, from the guards. Then her wings drummed, ascending, Escander squirming helplessly in her grasp. But she set him down on a roof of a warehouse, the plunk young man looking utterly defenseless without his clothes. And indeed, such was the case, for of course he had no weapon. Derealization made Kotaro's helly churn. When she told him why she'd come for him, he said, But I've never let land on Axtan. I only stood and watched. It doesn't matter. My master ordered me to kill you, and I must obey. Please, he said, tears streaming down his plump cheeks. I admit I'm at fault. I should have found a way to stop it. But all my life I've always felt that I had to do as Moltam wanted. Not the other way around. Punish me if you must, but spare my life. I cannot, she said. Put up your hands. Instead, he clasped them together and sank to his knees. I beg you. I can help you. I can warn you about Ilmira magic. I know about the spells Mertam carried. They couldn't save him. Those were nothing. My family has wizards as powerful as the Hajin. More powerful. Because they don't scruple to the invoke the kings of darkness. 
and I know they're making deals to deal with you. I could spy on them, the exact, discover exactly what. I cannot barter with you for your life, Carter said. I can only execute my master's order. Stand up and fight. Excander curled into a bar and blubbered. Suddenly she hated him and all the Ilmiras, as they themselves had demanded that she defile herself with their destruction. Galvanized by rage, which in no way diminished her anger, she pounced on him. Later that night, when she glimpsed herself in Sabu's mirror, she realized she's changed again. Her loosened eyes had taken on a flat, metallic cast that transformed her soft gaze into the predatory stare of a falcon. Over the course of the next week, the Aramaras became increasingly wary. Those who dared venture from their homes at night and verily did so in the company of bodyguards or well-armed friends, or in the case of one fellow in disguise. One slightly inconvenienced by such measures, Kotaro continued her gory work, still revolted by it, yet periodically seized by the fury that had come upon her when she slew Iskander. Her appearance continued to alter in subtle respects, her features sharpened, while the sheen of her feathers dulled. Perhaps she, a creature of the Ennis Heverd, had tarried near the earth too long, and its gross solidarity was somehow coursing the finer stuff of her being. By day, she attempted to purge herself in the sky, to revitalize herself by rising up, up, and through the clouds, and into the star-dappled blackness beyond. But no matter how high she flew, she couldn't escape the miasma of uncleanness, of savagery and hate that seemed to cling to her. When Kotara slipped to the window, Sabul was sitting and staring into space. His brown hair was a tangled of greasy spikes, and his chin remained unshaving. His elaborate white robes were wrinkled, and the smell of the unwashed body inside them. Master, the angel said. Then Wong wavered, shifted heavily around to face her. Did you get Otari? he asked. With some difficulty, she said. He set a trap of sorbs, with himself as bait. When I flew down at him, a mage befuddled me with an illusion, and half a dozen hard bravado sprang out at me. I had to have killed them all, lest one report seeing an angel. Her eyes pulsed, but no tears slid down her cheeks. Perhaps she'd cried them all already. Suburbing, that's, he just heard. Vaguely, well, I suppose that if mercenaries choose to serve the Elmira's, they share in the guilt of the Emeras. Kotara glared, glared at him. Her fingers twitched. Do you truly believe that? He shook his head. I don't know. But in case, it's over. No use fretting about it now. It's likely to happen again. I've already slew Multam and his chief companions. Now we're down to slaughtering youth who roam the city with only rarely and in all likelihood played no part in Axtan's death. It's time for you to stop deluding yourself that this enterprise is still a quest for justice and called what it is. A war of extermination. And every war claims innocent lives. Demon a war if you like. Whatever it is, I don't have to justify it to you. He turned away. And as she paced, a, as she paced around his stool to confront him anew, she gl glimpsed herself in the, scar the scrying mirror. 
the last faint glimmer of the luminosity had vanished from her feathers. Though still magnificent, her wings were merely snow white now, like the pinions of some arctic raptor. Look at herself, she said. You haven't bathed or changed your clothes since Axtan's funeral, nor slept, nor eating either. I suspect, I'm certain, you haven't resumed the duties of your various offices. I'll wager that you simply sit and brood in this chamber all day. Sabril shrugged. If all this vengeance isn't healing you, Kotar persisted, if it isn't helping you take up the threads of your life, then what's the point of it? Why must we continue? Because this isn't about me, the snorcher snapped. What we're doing is for Axtan. Is this the memorial he would have chosen? A pile of corpses? He opened his mouth for a quick retort, then faltered. After several seconds, he said, Made it God's pity me, I don't know. He was a kindly soul, that's for certain. He didn't even care to hawk or hunt. Did he belong to the Civic Guild? She asked. Spell smiled so slightly. No. He didn't have a wisp of magical ability, although it took him a while, long while to admit it. He wanted to fall in his big brother's footsteps. He was proud of you. Oh, yes. When I was a student, I had a bad habit of prattling on and on about all his learning, the arcane powers, and the heavy responsibility of my magical, mystical transition, tradition, the sanctity of the law, and how all must respect it, lest civilization come unraveled. The rest of my kin learned to avoid me and my tedious soliloquies. But Axtan hung on every word, his mouth twisted. Which is a shame, isn't it? If I had filled his head with such pompous nonsense, if I taught him that life is chaos and strife, perhaps he'd be alive today. But then he wouldn't have been the lad you loved, Cartera said, placing her hand on his shoulders. Besides, you could scarcely teach him what you didn't credit yourself. I think deep down, you still don't believe that any man, let alone a maid to the Summit Guild, has a right to defy, to defy the law, to seek a private vengeance. It grieves you that you've broken your, your oath and perverted your art. He sighed. Perhaps. Then stop. Soon, I promise. Meaning when the house of Elamira is extinct, when I've killed every last one of them, even those innocents of Axan's death or any other crime, by that time you'll be mad and damned. As I told you, doesn't matter what happens to me. You have to understand, our parents died when Axan was a baby. I raised him, though of course various relatives and servants helped. I was responsible for him. In the end, I failed to protect him. But at least I can make his killers pay. No matter how many you slay, it won't move him back, Kater said. Nor could all the blood in Zafir wash away your guilt. Rather, it curse you, he cried, striking her hand from his shoulder and surged to his feet. How dare you strive to sway me from my purpose? You're only a slave. Be gone until tomorrow evening. Shaken with frustration, Kotar turned and moved away. She'd come so close to persuading him. By the end, his bloody obsession had proved stronger than any argument she could muster. She folded her wings to slip out the window, then realized she didn't feel as if she, she were compelled to go. Ever since the moment Sabul had summoned her, She'd bored the touch of his magic, like a collar of silk that would swell into an iron yoke if she ever defiled him. Now, however, the sorcery had grown so 
attuneated that she could scarcely feel it at all. She didn't understand how that could be. So, only a wizard conjured agents were so bound to him until he perished or chose to release them. But she did comp comprehend that fate had given her opportunity to liberate herself permanently. Sabul was lost in thought again, seemingly unaware that she had yet to depart. Starting lightly as a cat, she tiptoed toward him. On the way, she lifted an ivory hilted longsword from its rack. She trusted her own prowess. How could she not? I've proven it over and over these past several nights. But she respected Sabul's sorcery as well, and a weapon would help ensure that she slew him instantly, to dime him the chance to rattle off a spell. Besides, it would be somehow satisfying to dispatch him with one of his own tools. As she glided closer, she felt the magic of the summoning again gather itself and fumble at her like a palsied hand. Too late, she thought. A final step carried her into striking rage. She raised the blade for a decapitating stroke, and then, even from the back, his appearance struck her anew. How miserable he looked with his head bowed and hunched shoulders, his stale vestments and unmushed neck. How sorely in need of help and solace. Suddenly, her murderous attempt seemed not merely alien, but despicable, and the cruel pleasure she found in her purpose. Fowler still, she hesitated. In an instant, the power of the summoning came back full force, like a set of medical snapping shut. She grimaced in the vexation, but did not care. Kashif could feel the magic still wasn't as strong as it had been originally. Something was chipping away in it, and as soon as she and soon she'd shake it off for good. Katera alternately crept and flitted through the maze of towers, rooftop, balconies, and walls, windows that together constituted the upper stories of the Ilomera mansion. Even those members of the family who normally resided elsewhere had moved into the great house for the duration of the crisis, just as so they were all kept indoors after dark. If the angel was to con continue slaying them, she would have to extract one of them from their stronghold itself. The risk class clearly expected her to attempt precisely that. The exterior of the mansion fairly bristled with sentries, as well as alarms and snares, both mechanical and magical in nature. Invading them all, she peeked into one casement after another, searching for Farin Tynlo and Iromera by marriage, the knight's appointed prey. Chansey was a venture Chansey as such a venture would be, she might attempt she sorry, she might actually have to search around inside to locate him. But not if Sabu's magic failed utterly, and she sensed that the binding might well crumble away before the night was through. The prospect wasn't entirely present. Bewildered by the stranger who nearly struck Sabu down from behind and taken vicious pleasure in a deed. She spent the day pondering her situation, and her reflection had borne fruit. She believed she now understood why the sorcerer's magic was failing, and if she was correct, she was paying a heavy price for her liberation. But not too heavy. Not if it afforded her the opportunity to pay Subul back for misusing her. Then, leaving this charnel house of a city and its demented blood fields far behind, she contemplated her master's spell, as best she could judge, 
it was still potent. Time to go inside then. She climbed through a window into a vacant bedchamber, and at that moment, the whole world seemed to beat like a colossal heart. Tainted with decay and damnation, the pulse of power grated on her senses like the throbbing of an abscessed tooth. Elsewhere in the house, some mage was performing infernal sorcery. Not a simple spell like the one Moltev had unleashed on her, but a far more elaborate conjuration. Escander had warned Contra, Cotera, that his kin planned to raise some dire power against her. That was that happening now. She proposed she better find out about it. Keeping a wary eye out for members of the household, she skulked through the corridors and down stairways, following the magical emanations at their so to their source. At first, she encountered no one. Lacking her more rarefied perceptions, the Eumeras and their retainers could scarcely have registered the main lane powers surging through their house. Even so, they must have recognized that some fierce, fearful enterprise was afoot, and therefore abode in their personal quarters. Eventually, the pulsations led her to a narrow, match-boarded door, and two sentries stationed before it. Peeking at them from behind an enormous vase, Kotero saw that they were edgy. And small wonder, the snaring, snarling sound of the chant murmuring through the portal at their backs was enough to jangle any mortal's nerve, even if he didn't comprehend the tongues of the abyss. Sabul had commanded Kotero to conceal herself from human eyes, but the erosion of his influence left her considerable leeway in how she carried out the directive. She simply waited until both guards were looking elsewhere, then charged down the hallway at them. Closing the distance in an instant, she struck them unconscious before they could level their spears, shout an alarm, or even presumably discern what matter of creature had assailed them. Cautiously passing through the through the crack between the door and the jam, Kotara found herself at the top of a long staircase, which descended into a subterranean chamber. On the floor below, greenest flames, the sole source of illumination, fluttered in an iron brazier, casting the dancing shadows of five humans on the rough stone walls. The sorcerers were all middle-aged, or older, no doubt ranking members of the House of Ilomira, and each rolled their regalia of an initiate of the mysteries of darkness. Sickly sweet smoke hunting in the air, the product of some narcotic substance smoldering in the flames. Crouching down, graceful for one, for once that her feathers no longer glowed, Kotera watched as the chanting rose to a climactic crescendo. On the final syllable, the emerald flame shot upward, and the strongest pulsation of magic yet, so potent it seemed to sab her like your lance, split the air. Nothing else happened for the next few moments, save that the fire shrank back to its former height. If she had known better, the angel might have imagined that the ritual had failed. Gradually, however, the temperature dropped, until the crypt was as frigid as a hollow inside a glacier. At the same time, a portion of the darkness seemed to gather itself, to clot and take on definition until it became a huge figure with scarily hide, bat-like wings, and the curved horns of a ram. Eyes as green and lambent as the fire shone beneath a bony ridge of brow, 
Kotera tensed as she recognized the fame for what it was. A night banneret in the host of darkness. She recalled the first time she'd seen such a creature, riding at the hand of a column of lesser demons during that primordial rebellion when the spirits of darkness had nearly overthrown the divine will, destroying her people, extinguishing the sun, the moon, and the stars. Despite herself, she shivered. The five moral bowed to the fiend. The eldest of the Emilmiras, a stooped wizened woman with spotted skin and the silly hair, quavered. We bid you welcome, spirit. The harbinger of night merely smirked, bearing rows of jagged fangs. If the older woman was non-fussed by the pain's response, or lack thereof, she didn't show it. My family is in desperate straits, she continued. Some ancient is murdering. I know about your troubles, the monster rasped. Just as I know that, as you suspect, the guild mage Sabul Harjin is responsible. I will kill him if you meet my price. A sorcerer with a grizzard being explained. Trice, my family has a covenant with your kind. The paladin of darkness stared down at him. Kotero could not tell what the Elmira Elba read in the fiend's eyes, but it was enough to make him blanch. Your pack scarcely gives you the right to command a captain of the legions of the darkness, the spirit said at last. Conjure up some worm if you think it capable of overcoming a wizard of order. It will serve you docilely, demanding nothing in return. But if you wish the aid of a true champion of the night, you must meet my price. Which is what? The old woman asked. License to slaughter other mortals for my sport. Done, said a necromancer with an embroidered patch covering his right eye. Kill everyone you find in the mansion of the Harjin. The fiend leered and shook his head. I fear it's not that easy. You must make grant me liberty of, of the city for three nights. And hunt whoever and whatever I will. Only above the house above our heads will be off limits. The Illumiris gaped at him. After a time, the man of the Ipai said, But why? Why can't you simply kill the hygiene? Because their annihilation will delight you, the creature replied, and that's precisely wrong. You must squirm and bleed a little to enlist my aid. Such is the custom of my kind. We will pay your fee, the elderly sorcerer said, and you have my word on it. Good, said the creature. Toss my resmen to the brazier and feed me. I wish to manifest my arms and armor. Katara turned and slipped back to the door. As was so often the case of late, the angel's mind seethed with con contradictory emotions. She loathed the captain of darkness on sight. How could she not, when its race and hers had been at war since the dawn of time? It sickened her to imagine it wrecking havoc in the city. Yet she'd come to despise the morals of Zalfur. So did it matter if they suffered and died? Indeed, since Afid was here to slay Sabul, and so end her servitude, she should pose she ought to rejoice at the creature's advent. Even though it would deny her the chance to take revenge on the magician herself. Well, she ought to feel she didn't fret over what to do. Thanks to Sabriel's magic, she had little choice but to remain here in the mansion of the Elmiras and seek her designated victim. victim. Never mind. That meanwhile, the dark spirit would be closing on its own. 
or so she thought. But as she stepped past the unconscious sentries, she felt a tingling across her skin and realized that the power of the sunling had finally faded to nothing. Laughing and crying at the same time, heedless now of who might see her, she raced to the house till she found a window. Kotera sprang through, spread her wings, and hurtled across the city. When she climbed into Sabul's chamber, the witcher's bloodshot eyes widened in splice. That was fast, he said. I thought you'd have more trouble, considering that Farron had taken refuge in the Ilmir Citadel itself. Oh, I could have slaughtered him easily enough, if I'd cared to do so. The wizard, wizard peered at her uncertainly. What? But I didn't care to, she continued. Instead, I choose to do this. With a flicker of a wing, she overturned a trussle table. An intricate alchemical apparatus, constructed of grass retorts and tubing, smashed to the floor. And this, she pushed over a rack of cluttered wands and stave. And this, she, she, she snatched him off the floor and hurried him across the room. She slapped... He slammed into a bookshelf that fell on his backside. Volumes bound in, in crackled white leather and rolls of parchment tied with creamy ribbons showered down upon his head. Clutching his diamond ablet, he babbled an incantation intended to reestablish Chloe over her. She felt the man pulse from the gem, sensed the spell take four, but it never touched her. It's no use, she said. You can't command me ever again. Shall I tell you why? Still sprawled among his texts, and scrolls. I, her worthy, he nodded. Because I'm no longer a creature of celestial magic, she said. I can understand why you never anticipate such a thing. You humans remain human, no matter what you do. But we spoons are fundamentally beings of mind and soul. For all, we wear the semblance of matter. It turns out that our very essence can change, if we do and feel the wrong things. You corrupted me, Sabul. Made me your torturer, and assassin. And in consequence, I'm not an angel anymore. I'm just some sort of bird. Can you imagine how that grieves me? To have my very nature, my identity, my collection to the denied will stripped away? At least I possess my liberty again. And that means I'm free to deal with you. She moved towards him. He gazed up at her abashed. But not, she sensed, because he feared for him. I'm sorry, he said. I never intended to harm you. I noticed that your appearance changed in small ways from one meeting to the next, but you never told me what it meant, because I myself didn't comprehend until recently. But suppose I had told you. Would you have released me? I wish I wish you could say yes, but he composed his feature and, and clambered to his feet. Do what you will, Katara. I won't resist. Man out justice on your own behalf. She had never hated him as much as in that moment. Had he either fought or pleaded for mercy? Like all the men she'd slain at his behest, she had gleefully torn him apart. But there was something about his calm contrition and acceptance of his face that locked her rage up inside her. Fortunately, it didn't matter. Grinning, she said, Actually, I don't have to soil my hands with your, with your blood. Like you, I choose to act through a surrogate. She shook his head. I don't understand. The Illumares have raised a night banneret of the abyss to kill you. It may be on its way here now, and I'm commend to commend you to its hands. My recent experience notwithstanding, I'm sure that you'll see a far more able torturer than I am. But, clearly, Sok, 
Sabul ran his fingers through his dirty uncombed hair. Kotara, I know something of the spirits of darkness. Even if such as my order never summoned them, I know but the champions of the pit. Such a spirit wouldn't fight the Almeris unless they paid it. What price does it demand? License to hunt mortals throughout the city for the next three nights. No, the Almeris wouldn't agree to that. They're frightened of you, magician. They'll do almost any way to rid yourselves of you and me. I warned you that if you continue to wade wars, innocent people would come to grief. He grimaced. Yes, you did, and refused to heed. Thus, I have absolutely no right to expect you to listen to me now. But if that fiend slays me, it will afterwards slay scores, perhaps hundreds, of others. Whereas, if you stand with me now, there's a chance we can destroy it. Will you aid me? She laughed in his face. He attempted to take his, her hands. I beg you, I'm not asking for myself. Katera stepped back out of his reach. Were I still an angel, she said. No one would have to extort me to take up arms against the dark spirit or to pity the folk who suffer at its hands. But thanks to you, Guild Mage, I'm now a baser creature. I can put my own well-being first, and I shall see no reason to risk my life to aid a city that has given me so little to love it. But there's only one solution, said Sabul, picking up a ritual dagger with a circle cross base and pummel. If a fiend must kill me to claim its rewards, I'll simply deny it the opportunity. Kotera suffered. I'm sorry, but even your suicide wouldn't answer. The creature may promise the Ermiris that you'd be dead by morning. It didn't swear to take your life itself, and thus your self-destruction would fulfill the terms of an agreement. No, if you wish to hope to save your fellow mortals, you'll have to fight the fiend. I wonder how long you'll last with your mind clouded by hunger and lack of sleep. When you haven't purified yourself since Axan's burial, would your ceremonial robes are dirty and foul? Damn you, Sabul cried. How can you be so spiteful, considering what's at stake? I am as you've made me, she replied. Farewell. Guild mage. She strode to the window and leaped into the night. Within a minute, she was clear of the city. She had an urge to climb until she left the globe itself behind, but was no longer certain she belonged among the stars. What if she encountered one of her sisters, and that other spurred her for the altered and degraded creature she was? She didn't think she'd be able to bear it, so she simply flew out over the ocean. The back waves gleamed in the light of the two moons, and the wind carried the tang of salt water. She realized that she had no idea where to go. She told herself not to worry over that or anything else for the time being, to simply soar and enjoy her freedom. But she couldn't. There was a deadness inside her, and visions crept unbidden into her head. She saw Sabul, famished, exhausted, and still wrapped with greed, yet behaving like a mage, devoted to goodness and justice as last, ready to sacrifice his own life to save his city. Of course, he was only to seek, seeking to undo a catastrophe that was ultimately of his own making, and that scarcely absolved him of his sins. Yet sorely as he'd injured her, she suddenly found it difficult to hate him utterly, knowing he transgressed for the love of his brother. She also saw the bloody, twisted face of the younger man she'd slain, and imagined the captain of darkness committing similar atrocities on a far grander scale until the streets of the capital were awash in blood. She'd professed to hate the city, with its greedy nobles fighting over the crumpets of crumbs of wealth and power that surged through the fingers of the decadent royalty. In point of fact, most of the inhabitants were commoners 
who took no part in the feuds of the upper classes. Kotera no longer felt a profound and abiding love for all humanity, nor a reflexive, unquestioning desire to act in accordance with the divine will. Those gifts had perished with her angelic nature, that she could still distinguish from altruism and selfishness, mag magnanimity and malice, responsibility and abdication, and she recognized that she would be wrong to abandon Zafir to its doom. Moreover, this time she'd be able to, wouldn't be able to absolve herself for the thought that Mage had compelled her. This time, the sin would be her own choice. She suspected the guilt might ultimately prove as crippling, a burden, as Sabul's grief had been to him. Shrieking like a norous eagle, she wheeled and sped back towards the land. She saw flares of white light and bursts of inky blackness. Alternately brightening and darkening, the skies over the normal corridor where she'd still, she was still above the harbor. harbor. Racing on, her shadows flowed across the rooftops, and she discerned that she'd expected. The emanations were blazing forth from the windows of Sabul's tower. When she peered inside, she saw her erstwhile master chanting at the center of a pale phosphorus, a barrier against the minions of the night. A slender ritual sword shone in one upraised hand, and an ivory staff in the other, while the marble diamond burned like a star on his breast. The fiend loomed over him. Its enormous wings seemed to fill the chamber from wall to wall. A vest of blue mail armored its torso, and a helm with a jagged crest protected its head. Roaring with its stroke, it hewed at Spall with a dark two-handed sword. The weapon looked particularly insubstantial, as if it were forged of, of shadow, and it sizzled like meat on a griddle when it swept through the air. Every stroke penetrated a little bit further into the zone of warding established by the magic circle. The monster struck yet another blow, blow and with a sharp crack, Spruill's amulet shattered, and suddenly no longer impeded by the ring of luminance, the shadow store streaked towards the young mage's head. So... Sabul hopped frankly backwards, and it cut missed him by a hair. But his foot came down on the leg of a broken chair, which turned and threw him off balance. He fell, and the knight of the abyss pounced on him. Fleeting gracefully, as she was no longer too chivalrous to attack an opponent by surprise, Kotera stumbled into the room, snatched up another ritual sword from the blood-wooded rack of such implements, and charged, intent at stabbing the dark monster in the back. The feed must have heard her coming, for it pivoted smoothly. Her weapon rang as the night's darkness parried her thrust. The fiend reposted with a horizontal head cut while she attempted to counter-parry. The shadow sword swept through her blade as if it weren't there. Evidently, the internal glaive was solid only when his master wanted it to be. She ducked, but didn't quite manage to avoid the blow. The shadow sword missed her head, but glazed the top of her wing. She felt a of pain, and a bloody white figure feather drifted towards the floor. From a crouch, she swept at her opponent's three-footed toe, and the monster stepped nimbly out of his her range. Her point grated onto the hardwood floor. She straightened up, and they both came back on guard, then realized one another, looking for openings. After a moment, the fiend's burning jade eyes narrowed in perplexity. I've never seen a creature like you before. What are you? Something the divine will create to oppose abominations like you, she replied. And by firm myth, that was still true. 
no matter what has happened to her since. She flung herself at her foe. Kotera knew she was overmatched. Though she was quicker, the fiend was stronger and had a longer reach. Together with the Sao-Shou sword which could parry but not be parried, those attributes gave her foe the advantage. But perhaps she could keep it busy long enough for Sabrul to cast a spell potent enough to deal with it. The magician had already clambered to his feet and resumed his chanting. Veils of pearling white swirled around him as his conjuration took shape. The winning woman prayed that the destruction of the marble diamond had so diminished his magic as to render his efforts futile. Now he would need to draw his power from the wide world itself, specifically from those expanses of grassland to which he'd established a magical link. A whip snap beat of her wings, carried her high enough to thrust at the dark spirit's eyes. The harbinger of her neck struck her bait down out of line, then slashed at her shoulder. Remembering that unlike her foe, she could not parry, she remembered that every instant. She moved, she swooped beneath the stroke and cut at the monster's rib. Clashing the fine links of its dark mail, turned the blow. The, the shell sword swept down at her, and she barely mared to wrench herself out of the way. Blundering against a small round table in the process, an hourglass toppled from it and crashed to the floor. As she struggled to recover her equilibrium, the fiend wheeled and rushed at Sabul. Caught by surprise, Kotera couldn't pursue fast enough to keep the knights of darkness from reaching the mortal. She cried out, hissing and cackling. The shadow sword leaped at his target. Sabul shouted a word of power. The ring of phosphorus flared and his staff glowed. Though the monster's sword never touched anything but air, it rang and rebounded as if it had struck a shield. At the same time, or at the same instant, the staff snapped in two, and Spool stumbled backwards out of the glowing circle. His adversary laughed and strode after him. Her wings fluttered, the wound one throbbing with every beat. Kotara threw herself between them. Her sword flashed out in a stop cut to the fiend's upraised short arm, and at last she succeeded in drawing a little blood, or rather a steaming malodorous ooze. The fiend snarled and struck back with a blow that had would have shorn her wings off if she hadn't twitched it aside. She fainted to the left of the monster's blade to draw a parry, then Gishin disengaged and thrust on the other side. But the shell sword shifted in time to deflect the attack. Kotera instantly retreated to forestall a riposte, and the two spirits paused to study each other anew. Behind his protector, Sapul resumed his incantations. You fight well, the knight of the pit called Tatera. On another occasion, I might enjoy prolonging our duel, but alas, I find myself impatient to get on with murdering the city. Do you think it's possible that in three nights I could slaughter everyone? Imagine the oh-so-ambition Elamiras emerging from their rescue, refuge, to discover that no one, there's no one left to rule. What a rich jest that would be. The creature's wing beat with a thunder's boom, propelling it forward, and it cut at her chest. She spun out of the way and slashed at its throat, but it parried. In moments that follow, Kotera decided that her foe might well have been holding back hitherto, for now the internal's knight's sword was everywhere at once. Its cuts kept her so busy dodging that she rarely managed an attack of her own, and when she did, her foe inevitably, invariably bashed it away 
with a forceful parry. One actually knocked her off balance and threatened to send her weapons spinning from her grasp. Clutching frantically at the hilt, she managed to hold on to it, but the saddle sword was streaking at her again. Her wings beat, but they knew they couldn't carry her out of the way in time. The shadow sword halted inches aside of her head, but for an instant she had no idea why. Then she felt a surge of magic in the air, and realized that her last series of advances and retreats had landed her inside Sabul's ring of luminescence. Disconcerning her plight, the young wizard had commanded the enchantment to shield her. Her foe attacked again, and she desperately evaded her blows, heart pounding, sword arm half numb from pummeling it had endured, the dark blade plunged closer and closer to her body. She was tiring, slowing, and that meant that soon, perhaps in scant seconds, the shell sword would cleave her flesh. A shrill voice inside her, one she'd seen never heard when she was an angel, yammered that she must save herself by fleeing. She ignored it as she she ignored it as best she could. At her back, magic glittered and seethed in the air, as Sabul's conjuration built to a conclusion. But it wasn't accumulating rapidly enough. She was all but certain that the fiend would dispatch her and turn on the mage before he could finish. She had to buy Sabul some time, and she could think of only one tactic that might serve. The night of darkness cut at her. Instead of seeking to avoid the shadow sword, she threw herself at forward in an all-out counter-attack. Her weapons, her enemy's weapon ripped through her breastplate and into her shoulder. Though she did not feel any pain just yet, she sensed that the blow had done hideous damage, nearly settling both her arm and her wing. But at the same instant, she pulled her, her point of her blade punched into the monster's throat and out the back of its neck. The fiend had expected her to abandon all hope of defense, and her reckless ploy had caught it unaware. Kotaro collapsed to the floor. It required a titanic effort, merely to turn her head to sufficiently to see how the night of darkness was faring. The hulking creature had dropped one knee, making an ugly choking sound. Its wings shaking spastically, it took hold of the weapons, transfixing its neck, and began to pull it free. It had emerged in a series of small lurches, one agonizing inch at a time. But at last it was out, and the twin bubbling wounds started to close. The fiend gave Kotera a leer that told her, as plainly as words, that her sacrifice had, f had been for nothing. Then it picked up the following shadow sword, sprung to its feet, and pivoted towards Sabul, who calmly spoke the final words of his incantation. Power sprang in through the air. The fiend staggered, the holy magic as damaging to it as the infernal energies released by the summoning had been to Kotara. Shaken off the effort, the small, foul creature sprung at Sabul. Perhaps it imagined it could dispose of him before the spell, whatever it was, took hold. If so, the fiend was mistaken. Stone and timber crashed down as some irrevocable force whipped the scene out of its way. A white and scary translucent claw, as large as the creature's entire body, plunged through the ragged opening, gripping the dark spirit and lifted out into the night and up to a set of colossal jaws. Stray bits of the fiend showered back into the chamber as its nemesis chewed it up and gobbled it down. The dragon, assuming that its hind feet were planting on the ground, was taller than Sabul's tower. From its prodigious size and ghostly semi-transparency, Kotara realized that it was no summoned creature, like the fiend or herself, 
but rather an artificial thing the guildmage had fashioned from his wizardry. It swallowed a final time, then simply melted away. Sabul flung himself at Katara's side. For the first time, she observed the charred hold in his vestments, and a blistered seabring skill beneath. The marble diamond had burned him when it burst. He had a scraped, bloody mark on his brow as well. Perhaps the roof, part of the roof had clipped him as it fell. Gripping her numb, useless hand, he said, Katara, I'm sorry, I'm a healer, but... I know, she said. No one could mend this wound. The fiend cut too deep. I'm sorry, he repeated, for everything. She could barely make his face out now. The chamber seemed to glow darker, though she seemed, though she knew the gloom was actually in her eyes. I forgive you, she said. What? His whispered face. What happened when you go? How can I guess, she whispered, straining to force words out, when I no longer know even what matter of creature I am. I am not afraid. Perhaps I was born into my former state. I was still a bit like an angel, wasn't I, at the end? He stared in reply, but she never heard what he wanted to say. The darkness flowed into the prismatic light, and she was elsewhere. That has been a reading of Angel of Vengeance by Richard Lee Burns. Thank you for listening. <laughs>